welcome to Stone Club Walks and Talks, episode four. Today we're going to be taking you on a walk to West Penwith. We're going to walk with Christopher Morris, the film director of the film A Year in a Field. The film focuses around a standing stone called Boscowan Ross East, or the Longstone as it's also known. We start our walk on the field boundary near to the stone. We also visit several other sites in West Penwith, discussing them as we go. It was very windy, it was very rainy, so occasionally the sound is a little bit fuzzy and rough around the edges. But we hope that you still enjoy it and stick with us. There's only the odd moment, I think. Uh, But then we retreat to Christopher's kitchen, where the sound is different again, much better. You might hear us buttering some toast, and you might hear us making a few cups of tea along the way. On our walk, alongside Christopher, we're joined by the film's producer, Denzel Monk, Stone Club co-founder, Lally Macbeth, as well as myself. And then we go back to Christopher's house, where Sarah Ball, the fine artist, is also present. Hello, I'm Lally Macbeth. Stone Club is a place for people to congregate, to muse, and most importantly, to stomp to stones. We believe the journey is as important as the destination, so come on a walk with us. So let's begin by going into the ancient landscape of West Penwith. Christopher, a very, very familiar walk for you, I suspect, this one, after all of the, the days and hours you spent filming. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think I was... I think I filmed for about 270 days when during the year when I was filming, but I'd been photographing this stone for about six years before that. And I didn't come every day, but I did come a lot, at least once a week, if not more. And uh, so I've seen this field, this, this walk to the stone, in every single permutation of weather, season, day, night. Uh, so it is very familiar. Uh, driving over this morning, um, you know, to meet you, I thought, well, it's not looking great, the weather. You know, as I, as I saw it move, hills came into focus and disappears again behind the mist and the mizzle. Not uh, an unfamiliar sight in Cornwall, but... How many of the days would you say were quite similar to this across the 12 months you were filming? <laughs> loads, absolutely loads. And in fact, the summer was appalling. We had a really bad summer and the the crop, I remember, uh, was battered to the ground in, in great parts by uh, tremendous rainstorms that came in in August. And uh, I know the farmer was really worried about getting the crop in, but uh, he did. But it was, uh, yeah, it was not a great year. We had weird weather it was intensely hot in July uh, but we also had incredible rainstorms so uh, uh, London was flooded out I remember they had a month's rain so we again the the weirdness of the weather the weather changing the patterns of the weather changing are redolent here we 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 see it because it's so exposed Uh, we're just coming around the corner now and we should be able to see oh no the hedges there but it, just beyond the hedge now is is the view down towards where the sea is and uh, you know that's there's nothing between that and the stone so yeah. the stone gets the full blast of anything that's coming 
yeah, so, so exposed. Um, and, and interesting to think about the hedges not being here actually though as well because yeah. what this would have looked like or how this would have connected with the other ancient sites around us it's you know it's when you look at an aerial map it's very interesting isn't it because they're also interconnected and actually very close but the enclosure of the hedges does give the impression that they're all in separate places and yeah. you might have to drive between them but actually they're very short walks apart aren't they they are they're all interconnected they're all aligned but uh, i think the most interesting thing is i think i mean I've, I've been trying to do this as an experiment to see but i trying to imagine and looking at the sort of the uh, the way the ground moves uh, and has changed probably over time but I don't think you can see the Merry Maidens from th this stone no uh, I think so there must have been some alignment method they had which was around I don't know very tall poles or smoke yeah. or something I don't know to align them all I just noticed some uh, stones in the hedge there. Yeah, they're massive, aren't they? Well, and um, Lally was reading to me this morning on the way here about Boscow and Ross East and Boscow and Ross West and yes. how West is in a hedge. Yes, um, it's over there somewhere. And it does make me wonder when I see things like this, are we looking here at, you know, some sort of other burial mound? Are we looking at, uh, you know, at other sort of significant landscape markers? Yeah. Or, or is it just the Cornish hedge, you know, that is two, three hundred years old rather than... 4,000 years old. It could be. I mean, that stone there with the uh, uh, ivy on the top, it goes all the way to the top of this. So that must be at least nine, ten foot of stone. Yeah. Uh, so either it was, you know, a farmer get it out of the way and put it on the edge but and heap them all together, or there is something here, but who knows? There's yeah. supposed to be something in, in the hedge line over there, but a, a, a marker stone, but I, I've never found it, so... Uh, uh, some kind of waystone, but I've, I've never, never found it. So. So we just walked over to the hedge where Boscow and Ross West is, and. Um, Again, it's standing there in the hedge. It's upright, very clearly uh, another manure. Um, moss all around the base, ivy tangling itself around the stone. Um, almost lost, and, and Christopher, you said, you know, it's completely invisible in the summer when, when everything's abundant. Yeah, just, it just disappears in the hedgerow and uh, it's completely covered in and all that and actually a lot of the tops of these hedgerows are all rabbit runs ah. so also you get the rabbit shooting along, along yes. the top of the things I tried filming that and failed completely a, a magical thing to witness I imagine a very very difficult thing to try and capture this <laughs> thing darting yeah. along very quickly trying yeah. to get trying to only get away from you uh, yeah the other thing I remember we're just going around the corner here um, and there was a the pheasant that you hear all the way through the film this is where it was all the time. The amount of times I ran over here trying to film the bugger. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I eventually got it in close up, but I had to leave the camera and then retreat and just wait for it to do its thing and yeah. jump into shot. But yes. uh, it was, uh, it was uh, yeah, a cat and mouse game with the, with the wildlife here. Um, 
The Zoom recorder is sat on top of the curbstone that goes round, not dissimilar to a rounded Salonian um, entrance grave or, or burial mound. Uh, we're just looking at the cut-marked stone, which is a, a replica of the stone which is now housed in the museum in, in Truro, but still incredible to see. Uh, it's just on the inside, almost like a second layer of protection for the, for the tomb itself. And we were just talking about how far down and, um, and into the land the actual opening of the barrow would be. And I remember reading about how it would have gone all the way to the other side of the road where the sort of hedge line is now. Um, which is, I don't know, how many yards are we looking at there? It's quite a distance, isn't it? It's quite a lot further. But it appears to be dissected um, by the roads. I imagine there's quite a lot of disruption when that was first put there. Um, but still a large monument just on a grass verge. Where yeah. We've got the Merry Maidens to our, to our right as I look at the road now in the field and I can see the outlying stone. And then to our left, the walk that we just came from, which takes us back to Boscoen, Boscoen Ross East. Um, and then the pipers, can we see the pipers? No, not no. quite. No, too many trees and hedges. Yeah, but again, the pipers now dissected from from uh, the maiden, the Merry Maiden Stone yeah. Circle. Again, the road sort of dissects ancient sites on either side, doesn't it? Right yeah. the way along. Is it a, a poor planning but, decision made, but, made it. Well, it just reminded me that years ago I was uh, I made a, a film in Iceland. And uh, we were filming in Reykjavik, and uh, the person we were talking to, the, the, the county planner, brought out a map which marked in Reykjavik where all the hidden folk lived, all the elf mounds, and where the dwarves and Ulinga, uh, I seem to remember they call them Ulinga, and uh, lived. And then planning and building was done around those elf, yeah. elf mounds because you couldn't disturb the elf mounds, you had to go around. So the road here is cutting through this barrow because nobody cared, I guess. Nobody understood the kind of significance of it. But I remember in Iceland, and this was maybe 20 years ago, but uh, they had a, they, they, they had everything mapped and they had elf people who actually went out to, to, to locate where, where these where these hidden folk were living. So maybe so maybe we could hold that thought and, and share it with Cornwall Council and that maybe Cornwall Council's planning could evolve because Obviously, these sites are fairly well mapped and, and could be could be better mapped. And the mistakes of the past, where they've yeah. been thoughtlessly destroyed, yeah. I mean, the destruction that's happened has happened. So we're just entering the field with the Merry Maidens, just a few yards down from Tregiffian, where we were a moment ago. They, uh, gates wide open which is unusual the lights catching the quartz in the stones um, they look amazing from this angle I think always um, a smaller relation to uh, Boscow and Ross East but beautiful and special nevertheless yeah when I was uh, I knew I had to film it for the film um, but I was really careful when I when I shot here because the, the problem with here is it's very exposed to all the agricultural landscapes around. So I knew if I came here on a nice, crisp, clear, sunny day, you'd see all the land around. And I didn't want that for the beginning of the film. I wanted this to be some like space, which was its own thing at its yeah. own time. So I just waited uh, throughout the month of December. Was that the, yes, yes, of course. 
the fog to roll in and bang on time it rolled in as always yeah and uh, and then waited to about four o'clock so it's virtually dark right on the edge of what my camera could shoot and and that's when i shot the uh, the stones and the they appear magical. Oh, they're so mystical as well, the way in which it's... I mean, I absolutely love that shot in the film. It's, um, you know, it's so brooding. And, it, yeah. and you, you know, you, oh yes, we've got... Is that hollyberry? Yeah, somebody put a holly leaf right by the, one of the, the, uh, the entrance stones. And when I came here filming, over there on one of those stones was a Christian cross that oh, yes. bound and just left on the top. I didn't think I placed it there, but I didn't think it was just there. So we're in from the, the wind and the cold. So we've just walked back to, to, to Christopher's house and it's time for tea, isn't it? I think. Yeah, let's get some tea on. And some toast. Oh, some toast, yeah. <laughs> That'll take the chill away. <laughs> right, there we go. Oh, wonderful. Alright, so we just all walk back here and um, it's very warm and it's very nice to be out of the wind. It's quite it's amazing how noisy it is out there, isn't it, as well with the winds today. It's like quite gale force. It was. Yeah. Yeah. I mean one of the reasons that I didn't shoot much sound on my film myself was entirely because of that because my, yeah. my cam my recording equipment wasn't as good as yours and uh, so I in the end uh, I resorted to other people helping me out with the sound recording yeah so which sounded incredible yeah well they were really good at recording sound <laughs> actually I can take this sort of um, gonk hat off <laughs> off the It's absolutely a kind of, um, you know, it was by accident, not by accident, but it was an accident finding the stone. I got lost and yeah. one day and there it was. And, you know, it's been, but it's actually for the, it's not just for me, it's also for my wife, Sarah. We go all the time to see it, don't we? And, 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 uh, <laughs> I guess Sarah, Sarah's, Sarah's actually making delicious toast as well for us at the moment, so we're really treated yeah. now. Uh, the hardship of the walk and the gale force winds. And yeah, the exactly. And the all memory. those hardships, yeah. they've, they've sort of melted like the butter on the toast. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> we had, uh, um, but to my, uh, my daughter, for my 60th birthday, um, she, uh, she made me a a one to eight scale model of the stone out of papier mache <laughs> so it's uh, yeah so I think it's more of a family thing now than just me yeah. you know. everyone knows everybody knows yeah I'd love to see that easy models I've got Fantastic. it here I've got it the day that you first came across the stone I mean you said you stumbled across it how 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 long before you decided to start photographing the stone was that or was that the first time you were still photographing the stone on that first meeting oh that's a good question 
I was with my dog and it was really early in the morning. It was something about five and I couldn't sleep, so I went off to find the coastal path that you know, set off and do it. And, uh, and then I got lost and uh, it took about an hour and a half to get home. And although the stone is quite close to the house, I just got completely disorientated about where I was, which, which field I was in. Uh, did I photograph it? I probably didn't photograph it. I don't know, I can't remember whether I photographed that that moment. But literally, then I, once I found it, it, it had that effect on me that I went back immediately to photograph it, like for the first time. Mm. And then I just started photographing it mm. a lot. Mm. And I can tell you when it was, it was, this, it was September 2015. We, we arrived here in Cornwall in July 2015 and I immediately started photographing it for all the way from 2015 through to 2020 when I started filming it mm. instead. Did you, did you, did you both go there as well? Did, Chris, did yeah. Christopher come home and say, actually, yeah, you yeah. need to show the standards yeah, thing? Yeah, no, we used to go quite a lot together mm. until it became a project. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, also, well, in the middle of the project when I was filming, you broke your ankle. So actually you, you were housebound. So that was, uh, that was another reason why I could have, I sort of went off for hours. <laughs> I was on end mm. on my own because you were stuck at home. Yeah. Yeah. When, what's the farmer's name? When did you first meet the farmer? Roger, he's he's our neighbour here. Oh, he is. So, yeah. Yeah. Oh, so you already knew each other. Yeah. And you knew yeah. that was his fields. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. So, okay. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, once, once I started, when I was just taking photographs, I, I didn't ask his permission because it's on a footpath anyway, but, um, or it's near a footpath. But uh, once I started filming, I did seek his permission. I just said, look, I'm going to spend a lot of time in your field filming your stone. He, didn't know, he never asked why, mm. which was interesting, but he said, oh, yeah, that'd be, that'd be fine. <laughs> That's great. Then... Did he have a lot of information about the stone? I guess he has his own connection with it. He, you know, even if it's only a thing that he has to plough around rather than well, through. But, but he seemed, you know, you described him in the film as a custodian, or you certainly in Q and A. So, what's his connection like with the stone? Do you think, as the landowner? Well, I think it. That's an interesting one. I think it might have slightly changed by the making of the film, because he certainly said to me and his his son-in-law definitely said to me that by seeing the film it really made them think again about what what the field mm. was mm. it wasn't just a field it, or what the standing stones relationship with it and the the, the, the sort of environment and the, and the flora and the fauna mm. and which you know obviously I'm filming them in massive close up and demanding the audience to look at them for a, a significant period of time whereas they're just driving past in tractors all the time so I think it, it offered them a different viewpoint of looking at it. But he did, I don't know what, about his relationship at the beginning, but, I think, but he did say to me, which I think is wrong, he said, um, he said that the field is called Longstone Field because it's long and it has a stone in it, mm. whereas many in Cornish means Longstone. Mm. So I think, I, think, I think the actual reason it was called Longstone Field was because it had a many in it. Yeah, um, but he he said it was me, because it was a long field and it had a stone in it. Oh, but, I see. Uh, but I, I yeah. But uh, yeah. Yeah, and and was the generations of his family farming that land? Or I don't think so. No, I think I think he he's the first person to from his family to work to that land. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I think so. It's interesting, isn't it? You know, the unknowable. We were talking about 
earlier on in the fields around what the stone scene and how that's changed and the field systems, how they've developed and evolved. Um, but even in modern times, you know, the amount of people that must have known that and even within our lifetimes, you know, in the last two or three generations as well. I mean, it's, it's in a way it's more amazing to me that they are there and haven't been moved any time over those thousands of years. It's quite remarkable. It is, and it's, it's fascinating how everybody who has a, a, any sort of interaction with them will have a story or a set of thoughts about it. It's like it, they might not be say, in, into stones in the same way that, mm. say, a member of Stone Club is. Mm. But, but there's, there's, a, there's a relationship with it and a respect for it. It's like we were talking about it mm. in the field earlier, weren't we? This kind of the reverence mm. that hasn't always been there, you know, sometimes in, in, in the past stones have been taken and made into hedges, made into gateposts, yeah. just destroyed or, or taken away, sometimes very consciously, sometimes forced um, yeah. religious reasons, um, more often just out of a practicality of yeah. that's the right shape and size for what the job is that I need for, to do for it now. But yeah. but there are, but the, the kind of the, I guess there's like a sort of soft folklore that sits underneath the kind of recorded folklore, people who have a specific interest in that, yeah. that is quite often held with guardians of the land, yeah. farming communities. I was thinking about um, another Roger, Roger Green, who, who owns the fields down to um, Main Screefer. So mm. Main Screefer is like on the, mm-hmm. the last of his fields there. I remember talking to him and, and he was like, oh yeah, that's, uh, you know, the, 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 the stone with writing on it there, that's, that's where um, mm. some, some important person was buried there. That, that was kind of the story that he had, in, in which, which was kind of like, he told it as a piece of received wisdom that, that there was somebody important was buried under that stone yeah. once upon a time. And, you know, that's what the, the story of, of that stone is, with Realibrand, the, the, mm. the son of a great leader. Yeah. So you kind of, there's like the written folklore and then there's the, the, the oral tradition that continues that, which maybe gets lost or moves away, turns maiden into maidens yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and all the rest of it. But, but everybody's got a story about the place mm. yeah, that they carry levels. with them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, generations of evolving folklore and sort of use of language as, as well. Is it all right if I ask you a question? Mm. Why did you start Lally Start Stone Club? How, how did that...? Well, Denzel actually has a big part of this. Mm. Really. That's true. It was actually... Um, so is Brenda Wooten. It's, it's Brenda's fault, isn't mm, it? Brenda Wooten does have <laughs> It's true as well. <laughs> well, we were discussing Manifel Calhoun. There are mycelial threads that all mm. connect yeah, the parts out of which Stone Club was great. <laughs> yeah. I went to meet Denzel for the first time um, at his office in Penzance. And, um, after after and going we to the Mordonna exhibition, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, we just seen that, and we were staying at um, Rosemarin. Mm-hmm. And um, probably in the Mordonna mm-hmm. for a few days. And Denzel was meeting um, Florence Brown, a filmmaker who was looking at Brenda Wharton. And the film, the, the meeting, the idea of meeting was just to meet and then also to discuss this film project and Brenda Watson because, you know, we all love Brenda Watson and think those songs are amazing, it's an interesting story. But um, I would spot, you know, the, oh, there's Amy Hale's uh, biography of Ethel Colquhoun and, oh, there's uh, a Ian Cookbook or, you know, there was these various amazing books around and stuff, recognising them all and seeing them on Denzel's bookshelf. Markers, markers of a similar mm. obsession. So we ended up talking much more about sort of 
artist that walks, walk, worked and walked around this landscape. The way I remember it is we spent half an hour just talking at each other, like I'm interrupted about all the all the, the, the various megaliths that we've been to visit in previous yeah. weeks. <laughs> so, we, so we made plans to go out, you know, and Denzel took us to, where did we go to? It was Barrow. We went, went to Basiliac, yeah. Barrow. Basiliac. Yeah. yeah. But also I should interject at this point, because I was still at Rosemary when you were having yeah. this meeting sort of working away and I was like oh gosh Matthew's been gone a really long time I thought <laughs> yeah, he was only going now. for an hour <laughs> yeah. and then you came back and you were like raving about how amazing Denzel was and like you were like oh he was just so interesting he had like loads of really um, you know uh, like lots of crossover and yeah so you were definitely very enthused yeah so there was always the idea of getting out yeah. and meeting people that Ali and I had been discussing it's sort of like this is a you know we have to remember that post lockdown moment where you were allowed out to go and explore things further afield than your own proximity again but people were still often very nervous about doing that even in outdoor scenarios yeah. and, and certainly meeting another person might be more of a oh gosh you know mm-hmm. someone else here rather than oh hello isn't yeah. it great to be meeting people outside again um, and we thought, well, there's a there's a sort of sense of safety and and freedom and um, like-minded souls, even if they come from different places, um, and different places, you know, sort of geographically and ideologically. So, you know, a stone circle can represent pre-political system, country boundaries, all of those things, and it also can be something that allows um, people to be letting themselves off a little bit from having to be an expert in some fields. They can be an expert, they could have that, but we thought there's such a value in a geologist being able to talk about the structure of the stone and an archaeologist talk about the reason why they're sited there and what they know and you know you, you might have an ecologist that will tell you about all the things that are growing around it and you'd have someone else that could tell you all the bird names and, and all those things and actually if you add a poet and an artist you're starting to get a really fertile <laughs> mix of, of ways of seeing and all of those things can feed each other and an artist might go away with a slightly different perspective on how to paint a site based on something they just learned that sort of went in and, and vice versa. They might see a sight line that the, the archaeologists hadn't been looking for because it was unusual or, or shouldn't be there, but it is. Mm. And so we thought that diversity was interesting and then the other one was much more trivial really. It was much more a bit like, you know, when people are talking and me and Ruth at a dinner and someone says, you two should get a room. Um, <laughs> so it was a bit like, you lot should just all go off and do Stone Club. You know, it's yeah. like, we're actually here to discuss something else entirely. You know, we thought, well, actually, it probably is. Well, I think you came back saying, oh, you know, yeah, we should joke about Stone that. Club. And then I was like, oh, that's actually really good. And then I think almost, not as a joke, well, sort of as a joke, people were like, oh, make Denzel a membership. <laughs> card and mm-hmm. a badge because I had a badge maker. Um, so many great things start with a badge so maker don't they? <laughs> they do, all, all the best projects. Yeah. Uh, and so my mum became member number one and then you're member number two Denzel mm-hmm. and we're jointly members double number zero. zero. Like, like 007 but just... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was great wasn't it? We walked because we went to Basiliac Barrow which is up, up near Ding Dong and then walked from there so it, it started with the procession mm. walked from there to Lanyon Coit so again Lanyon Coit and Basiliac I only found maybe 10 years ago yeah. Lanyon Coit I've known been to my whole life yeah. and, and and that whole area around Ding Dong the moors, moors there and the Skedden Stone Circle was a really special place 
but ne- I'd never walked from Basiliac to Lanyon. I'd only ever come to Lanyon from the road yeah. side, and it was amazing because yeah. when you go down into the valley and then come up, then suddenly Lanyon Coit and it's reconstructed. It's not in its original yeah. aspect, but then Lanyon Coit on the landscape on the, on the skyline there just looks incredible. Mm. And it was so that was a, a like, totally different perspective, really, because I'd never yeah. done that way either. I'd only ever come Lanyon Coit from the road, and I think. Yeah, it was it was sort of that sense of adventure that we all were yeah. having it for the first time. Mm. It it's really such an iconic so photograph yeah. space, to, but to see it from a slightly different perspective yeah. than usual was really exciting. And then and then I got given a badge and a membership. Yeah, did we card. give it to you at the end? Well, yeah, when we, we we walk back to the car, oh, but just before we head off, because mm. I think we discussed it. We were like, oh, <laughs> should we give it to him at the beginning? And then we thought, no, 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 the end. It's and I was so excited, <laughs> like a little, little boy, very excited to get his club membership in the post. Yeah. <laughs> so what is the membership members now? It's about um, three thousand members. Wow. Yeah, it's. It's not dissimilar, though, to your getting lost in the dog walk, you know, it, mm. it's that same excitement, uh, mm. you know, when you're out there and you see something, and Lanyon Court was very much like, there's Lanyon Court, mm. and we can see it from here. I wonder if there's a bog or a stream or a fence or something that prohibits that route mm. now, if not then. So you're sort of heading there just hoping. Mm. You don't really know if you'll make it, you know, all the way. You might have to turn back around, get in the car and drive around anyway. But I love those things, making those connections mm. on, on far. And, you know, I think that's... It was that's, a good starting yeah. point, I think, wasn't it, in terms of how we approach most things in Stonecrop, in that kind of sense of, like, we might not know the end, mm. or how we're going to get to the end exactly, but mm. it's kind it's of about that journey or that adventure, yeah, and spending and, time with people. And what that did also was open up the the idea and the possibility of community sharing. Mm. So, you know, Denzel's um, reflection on that day rather than ours, and Denzel's photographs and Denzel's notes and those kind of things then being something that we could highlight and say, here's somebody, you know, who's basically grown up here their entire life and has generations of family from here, um, sees the landscape in this way and has this particular perspective and that's really interesting. Um, and, it, and it's his experience. But then, you know, something like a year in a field, in a way, is like the ultimate expression of those your stones posts. You know, people write in members, and they go, "Here are three or four photographs of the site, and here's what I did, and here's what the weather was like, and here's the person I went with, and this is how it felt." And and the film does that. You know, it's a it's a perfect example of um, connecting with an ancient site, but then actually all of the things that it had to teach you, because it's sort of like the greatest teacher by. You know, again, I've heard you talk about this in Q and A's, but for the sake of this conversation, at least, you know, when you talk about the flow of the year from the winter solstice, and then all of a sudden it dawns on you that you're making an environmental a film about yeah. the environmental movement and the environment, and, and that particular environment is a microcosm mm-hmm. of the global picture. It's interesting that Standing Stone can be a te- teacher. Yeah. And I'm going to use that word again. It's a catalyst. Mm. Mm. <laughs> I've got it the right way around this time. Mm. But uh, yeah, it is. It was. Um, yeah, it was all those things. I should just say I'm. I'm I forget the exact number, but I'm 470 something member of oh, the Stone early. Club. Ah. So yeah. you know, I did then. We did have someone write to us actually and ask if they could have a lower number <laughs> if one ever came up, and I thought, oh gosh, that's quite morbid. I don't really. Yeah, we, 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 not, don't we, a, we don't want a second one. marketplace for <laughs> no. Secondary market. Secondary market. 
Well, my, 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 um, when I did the tour with the film, quite a few Stone yeah. Club members came to the screenings, which is, a, and that, that was the first one number year, <laughs> and it was four hundred. Oh no! Oh, you've done well. <laughs> Under a thousand. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> it's really interesting. You must have had this a lot in the Q and A. I'm curious about it too. But the level of thought it's provoked. You know, we had um, Kenny. Uh, archaeologist um, the other day who'd written that, you know, he, he wrote to me and said it's not uncritical, you know, I, I won't see the film and, um, you know, I wonder whether we have pushed things too far and whether or not, you know, whatever cop it was you know, 26 in yeah. the case of this film but it's like, you know, we've known these things you know, the book, the book in fact um, a, a year in the life of the film, yeah. was that 1980? 81. 81. Mm. You know, so I think for some people it's it's very jading over decades to be working in this area and to and to see further deg- degradation and decline in, in climate. But the film felt, felt like a bit of a reset for me in that it, it really did engage people again to think about this, take the time to read about it. You fielded a lot of difficult questions on that Q&A <laughs> talk, didn't you, I'm sure? Yeah. I, I, well, they weren't that difficult to answer because I think they were things that I addressed in the film or yeah. I had thought about through the process of making the film, I guess. Um, How do we solve climate change? That oh, was that, that was, no, no, that was... Yeah, there were, okay, there were <laughs> a few... The okay, there were, there were a few difficult questions like, Chris, how do we change... Yeah, how do we... How do we solve climate change? How do we solve it all? Uh, yes. But those are, those are questions you can't answer, so that's all right. Um, uh, but uh, no, what was really came across was the um, the consistency between the questions in uh, across. So I've probably done twenty twenty five Q and As now, and the the consistency of the types of questions that came about. So to me, that says that there is a singular kind of thinking that people are having problems with, mm. and the film raises questions against that singular kind of thing and it leads to a certain set of questions mm. so I think that was kind of interesting people were engaging with so you, you, you just come back from your most recent Q&A session as, as part of the, the picture house circuit yeah. for, for World Soil Day was there anything was there anything about that framing of the film that was there anything specific that came out in that Q&A uh, yeah that was uh, yeah. so I went to Bath and uh, uh, the event was held uh, was hosted by uh, Transition Bath and they're a group who are working in Bath around many of the questions that the film raises but what was great was that it wasn't just me on the on the stage you know for the Q&A there was another filmmaker James Lavelle and uh, Rosie Jones who is a, a clinical psychologist she was on the stage and she she her interest is is working with anxiety around climate and taking people out in very much she said my, my film was a bit like was almost exactly what she does yeah which is take people out into the environment and ask for them to attend to what is in front of them yeah. in a very small way for for mm. a period of time which is really what the film mm. kind of is about I guess or is what happened to me mm. so it was really that was a brilliant talk mm. and James Lavelle was very interesting he, he's made lots of films of over the years of out and about uh, around the world doing incredible things with you know hurricanes and you know adventure filmmaking if you like mm. and then he's he's now changed his view around what he should be making and he's living on a on a houseboat between um, Bath and Bristol and is making films just in his locality okay, around yes. his locale so 
so again so that was a really interesting discussion and it was it was nice because the, the there was another film coming in after us and uh, uh, instead instead of the discussion just stopping we all went to the pub and and carried on and there were, must have been 80 people in the cinema mm. coming to see the film midweek it was pouring with rain yeah uh, which was really heartening there was one great bit though, which is when the there's a there's a scene in the film where a slug, a very translucent slug, climbs up the the stone, and, and I filmed it over about a six hour period yeah. as it went up the stone. In the film, it's about two or three minutes, um, but in the screen next door, Napoleon, the film was playing, and uh, as the slug was going up, the Battle of Austerlitz was playing in the screen next door and all you could hear through the cinema was <laughs> but of course nobody in the cinema that I was in knew that that wasn't part of the film and it was brilliant it, it really enhanced that whole scene so I might go back and redub it with a few sort of uh, Austerlitz type explosions going on in the thing yeah. But, yeah, uh, yeah. the two films were bleeding across the, the I wonder if there's somebody out there now that's um, thinking I never knew if you might have a slug. It was a distant booming. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Aren't they fascinating creatures? I wonder yeah. how they do. Yeah, um, but it was really good of uh, Picture House to do a green screen yeah. event, so an environmental documentary. Yeah. Um, because it played in 26 cinemas yeah. simultaneously yeah. across the country, which is fantastic. The United Nations World Soil Day. Yeah, so. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And which is also. Uh, uh, brings it right back to the beginning of the of the film because um, uh, one of the inspirations for the film was a book called A Year in the Life of a Field which you mentioned earlier by yeah. Michael Allaby uh, who, who wrote it in 1981 about a Cornish field near Bodmin uh, but he was one of the founders of the Soil Association and he's a proper ecologist and yeah. you know very interesting guy he's written lots and lots of books over the years uh, a lot for children as well about the environment and, and stuff but the year in the life of a field is it was a seminal kind of like thing for me to read because uh, it, it made it obvious what i should be doing in the field yeah. with this stone really yeah but uh, so it all linked up nicely that uh, the soil was a linking thing in that mm, yeah, absolutely there's more toast dig, dig in <laughs> but the other thing that I was thinking about then was the cycles, you know, these annual cycles and this three-year cycle that, you know, that we're just coming towards the conclusion of um, 2020 winter solstice to 2021, uh, capturing all of that, and then 2022, um, we watched the film for the first time yeah. in the New Lynn yeah. film house. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, you know, that was an amazing evening. I remember just being like, wow, you know, like, you know, on the winter solstice in New Lynn, watching this film that had been made over that 12, and, and the significance of the solstice and, and the shortest day, the, the fact that the project worked between the, those two, and then the third one was the revealing of it to, yeah. to the world. And now we're heading, you know, into 2023's yeah. winter solstice, and and we know that the film's going to play again all, all over the country, and... and you know, and have significant screening in London. It's um, well, the big thing is for the for the winter solstice this year. It's going to go on streaming services as well across yeah. the country, so everybody can 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 watch it. Hopefully, yeah. who, who would like to watch it? It's not it's not compulsory, <laughs> but uh, yeah. So so it's a real synergy. Yeah, started twenty twenty. That's right. Yeah, winter solstice finished. Winter solstice twenty twenty one. 
edited in that year and yeah. then screened to you guys and then now a year, another year on another winter solstice is that so God knows what will happen for the next winter solstice <laughs> well, it's, it's, I think on both counts it's fantastic that there's the um, streaming services and, and we already know that we've got bookings for next year at the film festivals and other cinemas that want to screen it and um, you know, so you've sort of got the official run, but then you have this life that now just I think builds organically, and it's really great as well because we've had lots of members say, "When will I be able to watch it online?" I know it's on, you know, Cousin or more broadly on platforms, you know, because everyone uses different things. So many of them out there, but also people that struggle to, you know, to physically get to cinemas, and also yeah. people yeah. That, that you know might psychologically not be very comfortable in yeah. in the cinema. Um, you know, going back to what we talked about with the post-pandemic, we had lots of people that really wanted to come to Stone Club events, but were nervous about being in being class. I, I had a message through through the website uh, a few days ago, actually, after the after the um, the World Tour Day screenings, from somebody who went to one of those screenings and said, absolutely loved the film. Is there any way that their disabled parents can watch it? So yeah, it was it was great to be able to say yes, they'll be able to watch yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. I think it's fantastic because there's so many options if. Smaller film festivals and community events want, you know, want to screen. Then you can watch it with other people and have that discussion and debate, and you know, and, w- and where it's suitable. Have a Q and A with with somebody involved, you know, or with you, Chris, indeed, you know. Mm. Uh, well, yeah. on that note, it's worth saying as well as it being available for people to watch at home with streaming services, it's also available now. Well, about to be available. Um, well, it is available now for any community cinema that wants to program it. So. That, there's a there's a Blu-ray with hard of hearing subtitles that's being made at the moment. So from, yeah. from next year, really, anybody who wants to screen it, either as a community cinema event or as a talking point, you know, to, to use it as a stimulus for a discussion about yeah. things, it's which which would be really happy. I was happy contacted to, by a, an academic who teaches at Bangor University, and she'd like to screen it for her students. Yeah, yeah. absolutely no problem. Yeah. yeah, you know, anybody wants to watch it. You know, we'll, we'll endeavour to make it happen. Yeah, because it's got, you know you always want your films to be seen by an audience, and there's something gratifying about that. But when when you hear about the conversations that are stimulated by that, that's a deeper sense of satisfaction. Mm. Do you think? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I'm always, to be honest, the, the whole thing has been so unexpected and hum, rather humbling. Really, I, I still can't believe that any thoughts that I have resonate with anybody else they're just my thoughts you know and then you put them into a film and then it, the fact that it's had some life mm. is amazing it's brilliant mm. Mm. well it's you know continuing it's a uh, it's it is interesting in that we've been talking about this film you know all of us you know on various outlets social media websites all the rest of it um, the very morning after the picture house screenings happened all over the country, we had a message from someone saying, "Oh, just you know, just notice this. When's it going to be in a cinema?" You know, and and the fact is that it takes so long sometimes for, you know, there's all the algorithms to work with and everything else. But people are, you know, they'll discover it and go, "God, this looks amazing." It's like, "Oh no, you missed it by one day." You know, being close to you, but but actually, don't worry because. You know, the, the screening seems to be still coming in thick and fast yeah. with half a dozen here or another few there, and it, it, it's good. And I and I do think that I do think it's it's a film that has the ability to talk to people on so many different levels because you know there is a very strong narrative there about the planet and about 
personal agency in relation to environmentalism. It's also a really fascinating film about a standing stone and about Cornwall and about a relationship between a human being and the other than human. Mm. Um, so there's all these different things as well and I think it is possible to, to watch that film and really be interested in any one of those subjects, maybe and hopefully all of them. But, um, but it's not reliant upon wanting to, to be any one of those things, I don't think. No. I think it, it just works very beautifully as a film. Yeah, well, thank you. I mean, what the reason that, they, that uh, you know people are only just getting to hear about it, despite us doing our level best to get it out there is that there was no marketing budget so unlike Barbie we <laughs> unlike Bar- Barbie Hyber we yeah, yeah. <laughs> so couldn't quite compete we couldn't really compete on that level <laughs> no. but, but uh, word of mouth is a powerful thing and it's it, and it is it's a more organic and it's a slower mm. process but that kind of feels like it's the it's right thing for the film, yeah. it is yeah, yeah. and, yeah. and our, our distributor Anti-World releasing Andy Stark's have been fantastic in, in getting it out to cinemas and, and beyond mm. and, and, and really sort of nurturing that journey of it. Yeah. As, as indeed at Stone Club, you know. Well, I think, I think, and I think a lot of individuals too, I mean, we've seen yeah. a lot of people sharing things, we've seen a lot yeah. of very excited, you know, sort of Instagram stories and tweets and things from people. There's lots after... Uh, pitch house, but we've seen so many as well across yeah. those different platforms where people would take a picture of you at Q&A, Chris, or they would be um, just talking about how they'd seen this film and it really surprised them, it took them aback, you know, they weren't quite sure what to expect and yeah, it's just been really engaging I think. It's, it gives me a lot of hope actually. It, it's, mm. We probably get quite a divide with people that are um, optimistic and pes- pessimistic about the overall, mm. you know, future. State state of humanity and now a place on this yeah, in the and universe. I, yeah. And I think you know the the environmental the green movement struggles with that also. You know we only had to look at sort of tipping point things again, and you know over the decades you see these things and you look at the amount of time there is left to, to, to really turn things around. So I, I understand it when people say I think that's a very optimistic future that you, you know you're you're hoping for, but. What else have we got? You know, otherwise it's just despondency and it's all over. And uh, you know, it's great to have art. It's great to have art that can actually screen in the cinema and to show people that there are people that do believe mm. in hope mm. and people that do believe that we have the ability to to change. And, and one symbol from the film that that really epitomises that is that slug climbing climbing yeah. the stone. <laughs> that's kind of that's an F um, Hercules. The sounds of war. <laughs> to the sound to the sounds of war. Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah that slug it doesn't you know that slug or at least that it's beautiful relations. that beautiful <laughs> translucent slug. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. What a habitat. I mean I'd quite like to live on on, <laughs> on, on a standing yeah. stone. Basically yeah. do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that might be the end. Thanks for listening to Stone Club Walks and Talks. You can find us in all the usual places, Instagram, Twitter, and of course our website, stoneclub.rocks. And don't forget to like and share the podcast. We'll be back soon with another walk and another talk. Goodbye.